Happy Raptors season opener day. To young and old. I've come around. Actually, excited. All right. I am. Oh, here. I watched some. I watched hoops last night after Leafs talk. Subscribe and review. I was so happy to have the NBA back in my life. I was so happy to have my annual tradition of just sending hateful Lakers takes to the Lakers fans in my life. Weirdly defending Chris Paul as he's 0 for 6, whatever he started with the Warriors. And then staying up a little too late to watch a tight basketball game. I also watched baseball playoffs. And by the way, a couple minutes, James Myrtle's going to come up. So I'm going to get to some Leafs things. Have a lot of Leaf stuff to talk about with Myrtle today. That's coming up in 10. And then I'm going to do a full Raptor season preview with Blake Murphy at 10 o'clock. So the second half of the podcast for those of you listening there. So before I do that, I just I got a quick rundown of what I saw last night in the other sports because I'm not going to have space anywhere else to do this. Number one, the Phillies broke my brain. And there's all these people that are crying about the World Series that it's not what we hoped it would be. I get it. But mainly what I said yesterday on the show, this is a nightmare for Blue Jays fans, many, many, many Blue Jays fans, the ones that don't want to see Gabriel Moreno and Lord Escuriel Jr. have meaningful moments in the World Series. I get it. I understand it. But like I said yesterday, uh, the, the trade's already over. This is not a five-year trade. Uh, save your defensive run save scored for Dalton Varsho. I'm good. I'm good, baby. I'm good. I, I, I'll Give me the 23-year-old kid who just had the game-winning knock in a game seven against actually a former Blue Jay, Jeff Hoffman. That's who was in there. So it was Blue Jay on Blue Jay crime last night. But yeah, give me the kid who's absolute stones, nails, whatever you want to call him, has been unflinching in the MLB postseason with the cannon for the arm that's 23 years old and that has way more, that has more control than Dalton Varsho even. It's just, it's a spectacular, it's a spectacular screw up by Ross Atkins and co. There's no defending it. And anybody that is still defending it, just go, away no one wants to hear it no one wants to hear it from you we get it I get it especially I love a zag I love to go with a contrarian take but it's just it's a nightmare trade it's already been decided so I, I'm just taking the other position is I'm just rooting for Moreno I was rooting for Moreno I'm rooting for Lourdes what I'm going to root for the Texas Rangers in this World Series I'm, I'm going to back the team that I was just built to hate in 2015, 2016? No, I'm just not there. The team that gave me the worst series at the Rogers Center that I can remember ever going to, which was this year when they got swept at home. And yeah, I had a, basically a public meltdown. I left the game early for God's sakes. It's against one of my number one sporting rules. Don't leave the game early. I hate whenever I see a shot of fans leaving a game early, especially big games, playoff games, and they're not just insanely out of reach. I feel a little sick. I go, how am I, this is really worth the traffic? This is really worth it? I think you're going to be sitting in it for a while anyways. That's what they drove me to this year. So no, I'm not rooting for the Rangers. Not rooting for Marcus Simeon. Not rooting for Corey Seager. Or any of the sluggers on that team. From a market standpoint, yeah, Arizona versus the Texas Rangers is not the hottest World Series we could get. But I, I'll tell you this. Phillies and Astros both blew both games at home. So we can cry all we want. Like I saw Ennis did on Twitter yesterday. He was like, 84-win team. And yeah, yeah. Well, I'll talk about them. I'll talk about that with them. And I do have a minor 
problem with this. Like, I don't want to see an 84 team or 84 win team make the World Series. We usually, we used to have protections against this, but this is the new reality of baseball. And the Jays got in the playoffs, not as a 84 win team, but what is an 89 win team? Who cares? This is what we're going to have every year. We're going to have a mediocre ish, a middle of the pack, bad ish baseball team that's in the playoffs. And can you get hot? Then cool, you can erase the 84 win season. And Diamondbacks were good for large stretches. They collapsed down the stretch. But that was a that was a pretty damn good baseball team. They had a lot of they had a lot of good storylines throughout the year. But the Phillies had two shots. The Astros had two shots. And the Phillies one though is more egregious to me. So if we're gonna if we're gonna hammer managers for not for taking starting pitchers out too soon, we should also play the game at least of when guys wait a little too long. And yeah, should the Phillies have scored more than two runs? Of course they should have. This, they're the Phillies. Their whole lineup is supposed to be built to mash. And Castellanos, he completely went away. Bryce Harper had a massive moment, didn't do anything with it. Trey Turner had one of the worst at-bats of the entire game with runners on. Just awful, awful stuff from Trey Turner, the $300 million man. So yeah, of course, they should score more than two runs. Got noted. But the Phillies broke my brain in that game. They got Ranger Suarez, who's always been a glorified opener. And they're trying to get five innings out of him. They got Zach Wheeler sitting there in the bullpen and they decide that they don't want to go to him as the piggyback. They want to start going to parts of their bullpen, their leverage guys instead early on and save Wheeler for later where they bring him in with a runner on base and have him close out the game. Essentially, it it made no sense to me. They left Ranger Suarez in to face Corbin Carroll for a third time for a third time when he was two for two against Ranger Suarez. And guess what? Guess what happened? Corbin Carroll ends up three for three. And then Gabriel Moreno, the superstar, the kid clutch comes through and knocks in the run, gets everything done. And the rest is history. And Corbin Carroll again ends up driving in a run later. It was just a mind boggling stuff from the manager. Just way too much faith in a starter that didn't deserve to have that much faith in him to begin with who had been all right. I understand the Corbin Carroll versus lefties thing, but he was five, five or sorry. He was two at two and he had already gone through the order twice. Just what are we doing here? Poor Chris Russo, mad dog. He's got to retire because the, maybe that was the plot all along was that the Phillies manager hates Chris Russo. And he decided to throw that game for the good of his ball club, because I don't know, maybe mad dog went in on them too many times too early, but yeah, Moreno drives in the game-winning run. Lourdes gets red hot in the CS. I saw Sportsnet stats put out that those two alone in the CS had more hits than the Blue Jays had in the entire wildcard round, which, whatever, it's way more games. It's way more games. Who even cares? Yeah, I'm over it. Bring on the Nightmare Jays Bowl. Bring on the Nightmare Jays Bowl. Moreno and Lourdes versus Semyon and the team that you hated the most during when the Blue Jays were last truly relevant. Anyways, a couple quick thoughts on the NBA last night. Call Myrtle. One, Denver sent a huge message. I know it's one game. Hey, I I plan on doing a segment next week, which is it's way, 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 way too early. But these are things I feel convicted in with the NBA. These are my confirmation bias takes that happen immediately. And with Denver, number one is, it was hilarious. I saw all the Sharps, right? All the Sharps were on the Lakers plus five and a half. Oh, the public's on Denver. Denver is the the public betting pick. 
Denver, the, the Lakers, the Lakers spent all offseason pining for the opportunity to beat the Denver Nuggets. They brought in all these bigs. Oh, boy, Richard Sherman's boy, Christian Wood, the next Pau Gasol. Get ready. Get ready for new Pau. Get ready for the new Lakers. Boy, are the Lakers going to be dangerous this year. Yeah, Anthony Davis, zero points in the fourth quarter, 17 points. Got absolutely dominated by Jokic. Jokic put up one of his absolute monster lines where it, you look at it and go, the, you're the Davy goes to the dentist. Is this real life? Is this real life that Jokic is just doing this so casually? And after the game, like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, I don't really care. Yeah, whatever. Imagine being LeBron and AD where you're trying to snicker about these guys and you're trying to build these narratives of you guys coming back and the rivalry between the two of you and doing all the talking and you're in their heads and blah, blah, blah. And then Jokic just shows up game one and is like, yeah, yeah, uh, whatever. 25, 13, 12. Good night, Lakers. AD watching me. <laughs> She's watching me, Jokic, bury him again. So... I just don't, I don't think that that Lakers team has beaten Denver. I don't think that that's going to get any better as LeBron and AD, again, in their 39, 31 age seasons, are going to change this at all. And, and this is what I was saying yesterday is I, I really do think we're seeing the change of the guard in the NBA, that we have this opening night where it's like, oh, LeBron's team and Kevin Durant's team and Steph Curry's team and all these teams. It's just, it's not Kevin Durant's team anymore. It's going to be Devin Booker's team. Sure, it's Steph Curry's team, but I don't think those guys are going anywhere. They're old. Uh, like, I actually kind of like some of their role players. I really enjoyed watching Moody play last night, but that Warriors team, like, they're not beating, any, they're not beating Denver. They're not, they're not going to another NBA championship this season. That's it. Uh, they're not. They're not. Uh, yeah, fine. It's one game. I'm, I'm telling you. I'm, I'm writing them off because I wrote them off before the season. They're, they're not good enough anymore. Klay Thompson is not the Klay Thompson of old. Draymond Green isn't the Draymond of old. And Steph, as great as he may, he may be, is, is not going to elevate a team that has Chris Paul playing an important role for them in his age 39, 40 season to win a championship and beat that Denver team. It's just not happening. They're not going to beat the Celtics again. They're not going to beat, hell, they're not going to beat the Bucs. So yeah, big message from Denver. Suns look really thin, but Booker and Beal are going to just have to carry a ton a ton, a ton throughout this regular season for them to be able to get there. Anyways, uh, leave stuff, leave stuff, leave stuff. All right, I've done enough on this. I got a full Raptors preview at 10 o'clock. James Myrtle, senior managing editor at The Athletic. What's up, brother? Not much, not much. Leafs win last night. Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a weird uh, one. It's a weird, this is a weird yeah. game because they got out, outshot by a billion and yet, I don't feel like they got drastically outplayed. And then I looked after the game. I did Leafs talk last night. I didn't mention this. I want to save it for you. But Marner and Matthews actually got caved in five on five. I went, you know, I, I thought the Tavares line was good. I went, hey, this is a big talking point for me. And I went, you know, uh, why didn't I know, notice the Matthews line more last night? You know, they were outshot eight nothing at five on five. So, yeah, that's not exactly what you want to see. But overall, it was like, Wool played well, but it wasn't spectacular. The Leafs, I thought, still deserved the win, and yet they got outshot drastically. It was, yeah, it was kind of a ho-hum game, honestly. It was boring. Mm -hmm. It was a boring game. It was not, uh, I watched Washington a couple times this year, and they're in trouble. Yeah, they're like, awful. The, the Capitals are, you know, like Ovechkin finally looks old. Backstrom looks like, you know, the, the injury and everything he went through, that he's just not the same player and they, there's just not a lot there. And 
you know, pray for anyone that has Rasmus Sandin in their hockey pool because he doesn't even have a point yet, and they've mm. got a, a bunch of guys. Like, there's just no offense there is what it feels like. No, they and, stink. They yeah. stink. They're, they're completely irrelevant. But they, this is the business they've chosen, right? This is the business they've chosen is they're in the Alex Ovechkin goal race. That is their – that's their cup every single year now for the next, what, three seasons? Because I, I don't think Ovechkin's get this thing done in two. It, it already looked a little painful yesterday when he had, I think he finished with 12 shots and he's just peppering everything towards the net. Every opportunity he gets, he's like, I'm putting it on the net. I'm putting it on the net. I'm not, I'm not passing this puck. In fact, it was at the point where there was a, like two or three passes he made in the game in the offensive zone when I went, wow, good. like nice. You passed it to the wide open player in the middle of the ice, but this is all they're going to be. I, I don't I think anybody's foolish to think anything otherwise. So I think you're right. Like, I don't think the Leafs played a great game, but they did what they needed to do on the road to beat a bad team, basically. Like, the goalie was good. The power play was fine. Mm -hmm. They didn't allow... They allowed a lot of shots, but not anything that was amazing. I don't know. The Leafs looked kind of, like, lethargic or tired. or I don't know. They just... It was just kind of one of those forgettable Tuesday night games that no one is going to be talking about, you know, two months from now. Mm -hmm. Okay, except for this part of it. (laughs) <laughs> except this show everyone can just be talking about this show no yeah. except for well not this show but this part of the equation which is the wool debate right he was phenomenal last night if it's not for a like god-awful breakdown on the penalty kill where matthews and marner and the entire team goes chasing the puck <laughs> to the left side of the net with a few minutes left at the or a few seconds left at the end of a period then maybe wool has a shutout um how do you think they handle the goaltending on Thursday? That's a good question. I could see, I think Keith will probably, hmm, I think he'll go back to Wall and then, I mean, Dallas is a pretty good team. They've, they've had some struggles here early. Um, they beat mm-hmm. up on Pittsburgh yesterday. I think maybe he goes back to Wall again just because of how good he's been. I could see that being the way that uh, Keith goes, but it's an interesting situation when you have a young goalie who hasn't played very much. Mm-hmm. You don't, you're not going to like, if it, if the rules were reversed and Sam Snuffle was the one coming off the good games, they would just ride him, right? Like there would be no debate, but when you've got the young goalie, you, you don't want to push your luck. Probably. I'm pushing the so, luck. I'm pushing the luck. I, you you got to put it. I agree with you. Yeah. You got to put it. I agree with you. And, and I think that that's what, I think that's what Keith's going to do, mm-hmm. and he'll tell Sam Snub, you get Nashville on Saturday. Uh, Nashville, another team that doesn't have a ton of big offensive producers, even though they've been a little bit more dangerous this year than last year. Um, but, you know, give give Wall another really good team in the league to play and see what he does with it. The Stars were a legit contender last season, and they've started the year 4-0-1. I, I want to see Wall against a really good team. I want to see the Leafs against a, a good team on the road, frankly. Like, I, I want to see how they respond to this one after. Well, I agree with you. I thought it was a pretty lackluster game. Nylander was brilliant. Uh, Tavares did his thing. I thought Morgan Riley looked really good. There were some nice nice moments. Uh, outside of that, yeah, it was a pretty sleepy game, right? Wool was terrific, though. And this is the part that I didn't mention last night, which is everyone's worried about Sam- – or the, I shouldn't say everyone, but some people that are in the you-should-play-Samsonov camp are worried that you lose him mentally if he has to sit out a bunch of games earlier or if he feels like he loses the net and maybe it shakes his confidence and it goes back to the version of him that was in Washington his final season when he finished with the sub-900 save, right? What happens if he goes and plays Dallas and he's horrible, right? Like yeah. What happens yeah. if he has another game against a really good team where he's bad? I actually, if I was Sheldon Keefe, 
I would be going to Wool and saying, here's a real opportunity for you to stay hot. You get ready for Saturday night. Put him against the lesser opponent in the Nashville Predators, one where, yeah, not as much offense from that team, not a team that's as good, a team that Toronto should beat pretty, I don't want to say handedly, but yeah, Toronto should beat the Nashville Predators. Come on, let's, what are we talking about here? Yeah, put Samsonov in a better position to succeed than throwing him into the net where all eyes are on him going, man, you, you, better, you better play well against this really good team. I actually think it's riskier if you take all the pieces around this to remove Wall while he's playing really well, have the fan base chomping at the bit, to see Samsonov, if he fails in any way, basically point out that they blew this decision and Samsonov stinks and Wolves the starter right now. Just play the hot hand, play the kid, and still balance the two of them out with the 50-50 shot and try to get Samsonov right against a lesser team. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that that's all right. Yeah, I mean, you want to maximize your chance of winning both the games, right? And I think that that's probably the way to do it. And, I mean, Samsonov, I mean, they started him on Saturday. It's not like he's been sitting for two weeks, mm-hmm. so... Um, if he's that fragile that he can't miss one more start that's when it. the other goalie plays so well, I yep. mean, that's, that's not a good sign. Yep. Uh, um, I know from on the road hearing from the reporters that have, have been there, they said that Samson was putting in a lot of extra work with the Curtis Sanford, the goalie coach. And I think that's good because this isn't just like, this isn't like Samson had one or two bad games. It's all through training camp, all through preseason. He was doing the, what do you guys call him on Leafs Talk? Sliding Sammy? Like he was you just all over the crease. Mm-hmm. And he's got to learn to settle down and get back to the goalie he was last year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's funny watching how different stylistically he is with Wool right now. And and so much of Wool, and you saw it in last night's game where it wasn't high danger chance after high danger chance, right? Like even Ovechkin's shootout attempt or penalty shot attempt was meh, you know? It wasn't like, wow, what a, that's the greatest the goal scorer of Ovechkin all time. Ovechkin back, backhand. Yeah, it was, it was all right. You know, it's funny. My kids were watching the game with me at that part. I was like, oh, look, it's a penalty shot. It's Ovechkin, yeah. one of the greatest goal scorers ever. This can be really exciting. And the kid, my kids don't watch a lot of hockey. They're eight and five years old. Uh-huh. And they, so they were they were like, oh, daddy says this is going to be exciting. And then yeah. it was like, the, it was the least exciting play of the game. So they were not impressed. And they yeah. left the TV screen soon after that. Yeah, so that I, it was a dad fail there. Yeah, that one wasn't great. Anyway, my my point here is just he, he's quiet in the net and he makes the he makes the easy saves. He, he doesn't yep. have the yuck, you know, the rebound control is better. And, and I just wonder for a team that's trying to find themselves too in Toronto, having a guy that's, that's quiet back there. And that, as they all say, is calm in the net. Uh, maybe really beneficial to this team. M- might be really beneficial to this team to just have someone who isn't, yeah, who doesn't create his own problems at time. I believe, I believe in Samsonov. I think that eventually he's going to have a hot streak during the season. I think that he'll be relevant. I certainly don't have it done in pen like, oh, yeah, come playoff time. Wool is the goaltender right now. Like, I, I just don't. I, I don't know how you could base that off of what we've seen. But I, I've just been way more encouraged by the Wool stuff. And what you said there about the mental fragility, if, if Samsonov can't handle sitting out one extra game because his counterpart is playing really well, then I have zero faith that he's the goaltender of the future anyway. I have zero faith that he's the goaltender that's going to carry you come playoff time. So, yeah, put, put Wool in. Um, you mentioned Nylander last night, though, right? Like, and this, the second line looked good. It was a sleepy game, but he just popped. Uh, what are you most noticing with his improvements this year? Because he, he does look like a different player, and yet it just feels like every part of him is just a tick better. I mean, he looks like playoff Nylander is what he looks like. Like when you see him, and I think the thing I would point to is, is the way he's moving and his skating. And he just seems, it seems very effortless. It seems very kind of 
fearless. Like, mm-hmm. look at the play he made there where he cuts through to the net. And I had to watch it back a couple times and say, like, how did he do that? Like, he just moved in the – he almost moved like a figure skater or something out there with the puck. And when Nylander's at his best, he's one of the best, I don't know, 10, 15 forwards in the league. Like, he can be so good. And one of the one of the great things um, I've been able to do is watch a lot of Nylander in practice, you know, uh, morning skates, and just, like, the, his his skill set with what he can do with the puck, with how he can move – how strong he is, but it doesn't get talked about enough. Like he's a, he's a tank. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think he's using all those. He just seems very, very determined and focused. And, you know, there were some sarcastic people in the press box earlier in the season that were saying, Oh, contract year, Willie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I, I think that he just really wants to prove that, you know, the, the, that he he belongs in that conversation with the best players in the league. And so far, I mean, I guess you you could argue Matthews, but I think that there's a pretty compelling argument that Nealander's been their best player so far this year. I would still give it to Matthews just because what he can also do defensively, like, Mm -hmm. and just some of the stuff he does even on the forecheck and how scary it is when a defenseman is trying to pro- is trying to move the puck out, right? Or a forward's trying to get the puck out of his own end and Matthews is bearing down on you. It's just, it, it feels a little different than what Nylander can bring in that regard. But if you're talking about the number one leaf you want, puck on the stick and fly in through the neutral zone, you're down a goal, you want him over the boards. I, I think it's Nylander right now. Like, I, I think Nylander has been the better offensive player to Matthews. But like, it, Matthews had an awesome start. The The goals are great. He's playing great. I just don't think anybody has matched what Nylander is doing in terms of like driving offense for a team. I, I bet you, I bet you that there's some charts out there that show this is the Nylander all along, right? This has always been William Nylander. You guys just always hated on him and blah, 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 blah. To me, he's different. To me, it's that it's the skating looks a little crisper. Uh, the strength, he just, you, you said it, he's a tank, but I feel as though he's even stronger this year. Like he hit the gym just a touch more. Everything, the finishing is just a slight bit better. Everything about his game looks way more dialed in. He's had way fewer moments of just complete mental lapses. There's been some stuff in the D zone, but if you're doing this offensively, like absolutely who cares? He's, he's been brilliant this year. He's to me, unquestionably the story of the Leafs season, even ahead of Matthews, even ahead of the goaltending stuff and all the lineup shuffling that's gone on. He's, he's been brilliant. So yeah, credit to him. If this is all about the money, if this is getting a contract, like good for him, go get the bag because this is the, this is the way that you're going to get it, man. Um, do you like Bertuzzi on his line? Nah, I mean, it wasn't working with Matthews and Marner. I mean, I think he's been okay. It's hard mm-hmm. for me to evaluate Bertuzzi because he's going through whatever the injury is, and we don't know what it is. And But it sound, it's severe enough that they were debating. You know, it's severe enough that mm-hmm. I think that that's why they're carrying the extra forward as opposed to an extra defenseman on the road, which is unusual because they don't know if Bertuzzi's going to be able to play every night. And it's severe enough that it's diminished what he's been able to give them the last, I don't know, three games. So, um We'll see with Bertuzzi. I think he's been okay, but I think for $5 million, you want to see a little bit more out of him. Yeah, it's hard with the injury. Like, I, we don't, I have no idea what it is because I'm watching him play and it, it doesn't, like, it, it's hard to pick up whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, my, what I've heard is he, he's like spending a lot of time kind of like trying to like stretch it out and like, but there's just something that there's a pole or something so that he's playing through that seems like it okay yeah because i was gonna but, say is nor he mostly looks pretty fine like and i feel as though he's cut down on taking some of the dumb penalties over the last couple of games which has been a nice change of pace 
feel like the hockey smarts are there, that he makes a lot of right plays. It's just he hasn't had the forceful impact, I would say, of the five-plus million-dollar player so far, and he hasn't lived up the expectations of, oh, this guy might be a newer version of Hyman or a better version of Bunting. Yeah, I think he got overhyped a little bit in the offseason when they signed him. Like, he's he's a good player, but you know, I think on, in a perfect world, he's a, a second-line 20, 25-goal, 45, 50-point guy. Like, he's not... The people who were saying he's, you know, he's going to get 30 and he's going to, you know, set career highs. I mean, he's had a lot of injuries over the last couple of years. As you said, he takes a lot of penalties. Hockey sense is not exactly what he's known for. Uh, he's not an amazing passer. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't want to be, I don't want to go down the, the whole list of running the guy down because he's a good player. But, you know, where he had a lot of success in Boston was on the power play, on the top power play unit. And they're just not going to use him there in Toronto unless there's an injury. You know, I was thinking about this actually the other day, how some of the big appeal is, hey, you get to play with Matthews and Marner, right? With guys like Bertuzzi who are willing to take those one-year deals. Same thing with Domi, mm-hmm. right? Hey, come here, take a prove-it deal. And it worked for Klingberg because he actually gets to run the power play. But this is the one downside. Like, I feel, I wonder if there will be a ripple effect off this. Is like, hey, it worked for Bunting, right? He ended up getting a contract with Carolina and it was, it was good money. It wasn't amazing money. I, I think it was a little under where most thought it was going to be. Like, I remember Frank coming on and saying he was the number one free agent and that he, he was due for a big splash. He was going to go outside of where the Leafs could pay him. And then he ended up getting a deal where I went, oh, yeah, that's, that's awesome. Good for him. But it wasn't like, holy crap, you, you can't pay the guy that. You can't give the guy that. He got paid, I thought, reasonably. Maybe some of it's cap, and if it was up, he would have got something splashier. Maybe it was just this being a down year where no one really got paid. But... Yeah, it, just, it didn't really happen. But if you're one of those guys, right, that wants to do the prove-it deal and you're an offensive player and you haven't getting those power play points, uh, you got to take that in a you, – you got to factor that in, that, that you're not going to get that time, right? That your best-case scenario is what we saw yesterday where you're getting the last 50 seconds of the power play. Yeah. Power play, too, it seems like it's used less and less in the NHL. So, And it's often a scramble fest. It's often different guys. You don't get a lot of time to find your rhythm. Um, sometimes you're coming over the boards and the puck's in your own zone and you got to break into the zone. And it's not, uh, it's, it's, it's not the great, a great place to be when you're, uh, when you're in a contract here on that, on that PP2, especially with the lead. I mean, the big guys are so good that, you know, Matthews and Marner can play and Neilander can play one and a half minutes every time, you know, I, I can't, the, the second power play unit, like how, how often have the Leafs had a really good unit there? Mm-hmm. I mean, there were some fun times when, remember when Spezza was there and quarterbacking it and they sure. would, they looked dangerous at those times, but for the most part, it's been kind of an afterthought the last six or seven years. Mm, I kind of like them though, so far at least. Like, I, I like yeah. Domi there. I like Domi there. I like Riley there. I like the two point, the Lilligren thing, like the, the tic-tac-toe of those three guys last night was was fairly nice. Uh, you know what? Yeah, you know what I like pass was was good. I mean, really that's good. only the that's like you know like Lilligren has not played very much on an NHL power play. That, I think mm-hmm. that was his fourth power play point. So, mm-hmm. but he's he's got the vision back there, and it's interesting using Riley as a rover with just how good of a skater he is. You know what else I like too is I, I think that I've come around a little bit on the changes and the shuffling because at first I went let these guys settle in, Sheldon. For God's sakes, give them a little bit of leash. Having Domi be a story three games into the season because you've moved him on multiple lines is, is bad. But this is this is a place where guys often get too comfortable. And 
Yeah, just having that level of everyone's competing, competing, competing for all their ice time, I think is a good thing. I, I think that this has been all right. And, and the other part of this, that, okay, Leafs power play was what, last year, second in the NHL? It was really good, mm-hmm. and yet for some reason. But it does, anybody who follows this team knows that the overall percentage is high and overall percentage looks good. But each season, it feels like they get into a little bit of a lull, right? That top power play unit where you go, what, what's happening here? We have a stretch of play where it seems redundant and we have conversations about who should be where. And already this year, they've moved Marner around, which has been a nice change of pace. But I like that they have something else to go to now, where if those guys aren't having, or they're not doing something, they can go to a reliable second unit. Or it, it, the other part of this too, they have an injury to one of those guys. It feels like you've got a bunch of different players that could step in there and immediately contribute to the power play, right? This isn't like, Ryan O'Reilly, yeah, Bertuzzi and Domi, like real stud power play performers that you can slot into there. And so I just, to me, the power play actually is going to feel more dangerous than ever, even though I've seen some stats that are like, it's actually down a little bit from where it was to start the season a year ago. So I'm I'm like bullishly optimistic about what the power play is going to be for them this year and the, the true feeling of... Uh, what it was supposed to be a couple of seasons ago where people said, well, the enforcer is the power play. Like I, I feel that more than ever with this group. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I don't, there's been what you're talking about with the, the measurement has been looking at with Klingberg there versus with Riley there, the expected goals or the analytics or whatever are down a little bit, but yeah. I mean, they're, they're converting. It looks dangerous. I think it's we're dealing with pretty small sample sizes when you're looking sure. at some of the scoring chances and stuff like that. I mean, I I haven't been watching the power play and 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 seeing a lot of problems there. Like they're getting into the zone easily, you know. Like they look uh, awesome. Yeah, they, they yeah. look awesome, dude. It's just the power play is fine. <laughs> that's that's why I, I saw those numbers too, and I went. I love how this is one of my favorite things about analytics is if you use it to support. A, a case against someone the analytics community likes, they go, it's a very small sample size. And if it's trying to make the case against someone they don't, like Ryan Reeves, it's like, look at this. Look at the Ryan Reeves numbers, even though it's supported by the eye test as well. Uh, <laughs> all I said is, it's it's very odd to me the way that sometimes these things end up getting pushed. I will say this though, okay? Like if there's one part of the early sample that I don't really love is, all right, they're trying to, I'm higher, I think, on Bertuzzi than maybe you, some others so far. I I like the hockey IQ. I just see him make simple, but the right play a lot. And I I just enjoy watching a player like that. I I wasn't, maybe I was part of the expecting 30 goals crowd. Maybe I thought that this would be a little bit more forceful, but I'm giving a bit of a a reprieve based on the fact that he is a little hurt, that he is trying to mesh with a couple of new players, that he is fitting in with a new team and that he's not getting power play one time. So all those things factor into me. I haven't seen anything where I've gone, man, this sucks, or this well, this isn't enough. Do you buy the theory that it's hard to play with Matthews and Marner and that, like, not everyone's going to be able to do it? Mm. I mean, those guys have the puck a ton of the time, and they kind of are looking for each other a lot of the time. So. Yes and no. Yes and no. Because I, I do think that it's easy to be basically, hey, go get the puck in the corner guy. Like, not everyone can do that, but I, I don't know how... Like you just have to be a dog on that line, right? That's why I kind yeah. of think that ultimately the the guy that's going to belong there is Nice, because mm-hmm. you watch him. The thing that really stands out to me the most with Nice so far this season, other than the the gorgeous like snipe on the first Domi assist, is when he's on a defender's back, he's the most noticeable leaf. Like he just seems to have this energy in short bursts. His size, everything about him, like the forecheck to me looks really nasty. 
And, and I want to see what he can do with some elevated minutes and, and with those guys where he's got the finishing touch, he's big in front of the net. And yeah, he can also force a turnover along with Matthews. Like the two guys that can mm. both finish Marner passes, two guys that put a lot, well, three guys actually, because Marner's also very good at turning the puck over. Three guys that are really good at turning the puck over. To me, to me that's the eventual destiny of the line. It's just that you had a little bit of chemistry with Domi and Nice, and I think Keith played it well, which is, hey, let it, see if it can develop into something. See if you can try to get Domi going, because eventually you are going to need three lines. You can't be a two-line team. Yeah, I think probably the debate for Keith is, is Nice ready to be on the top line playing against, you know, the best players in the league? And, you know, I, I agree with you. He's so good at his board play, mm-hmm. you know, like if it's a one-on-one battle and he's up against the guy, it, it is kind of like Matthews a little bit in that he kind of knows where to go to get that puck back and turn it over on, you know, and he's, he's a lot to deal with. He's got the reach is part of it, I think, but it's just, it's hockey IQ and being able to turn those pucks over. And I, I'd be, it's probably a matter of time before Nice is on that line. Like, I, I think we'll probably see that within the first half of the season at some point, especially with how active the line blender has been so far this year. Mm-hmm. I do too. I think that eventually what we're going to see is, that second line stayed the same way, the the way that it's been. And I, I, again, I like Bertuzzi more there. I think that he's fine and that he'll round into form. Uh, I think Nyes ends up on the top line with those guys and playing those heavy minutes. And yeah, probably get shelter a little bit. Like I could see them still doing stuff where they put Nylander up with the top line in certain games. And we look at the, the score sheet and it's like, oh yeah, Nyes got his 14 to 16 somewhere in there, but he's never with them cracking, you know, getting close to cracking the 20 number. And then a third line that, has that blend of we're trying to be responsible defensively with Camp and Yarncroc, but also Yarncroc, a guy who can finish a little bit with Domi. And you hope that they can sort of find an identity and create something like that. That, that to me is the, the inevitability here. That, uh, that second nice goal against Tampa to tie the game. Mm-hmm. I thought it was, you know, everyone's talking about the Domi and the nice connection, but I thought it was funny that, you know, Domi turns the puck over to Hagel there as mm-hmm. he's trying to go go into the blue line. And who's the fail-safe behind him? But Camp comes up, yeah. steals the puck back, gets it to Domi. Domi uh, makes the play to Nyes, and they tie the game. And, you know, so maybe there's something. I mean, it, it feels like on paper that that line's a little bit weird having Camp there. But maybe, especially with Domi there, you need someone who's coming up as the third forward who's just going to make sure that, you know, they've got enough guys back and that they can they can turn the play back the other way sometimes. Dude, that's the way I feel about it. That's why I like that line is there's a defensive failsafe for Domi. allows him to play with a little bit more confidence. And I think Camp is a good player. People were upset about the contract and the length and I, I would have agreed with them if he was playing with that fourth line still, right? And they're just going, hey, here's your nine minutes a night, David Camp. You can't have that. Got to see what he is as an actual playing 13, 14 a night playing some tough matchups and with him out there, I feel like you can put Domi in those spots. And if yarn crocs out there with him, I, I feel the same way. Like if, if it's nice, then cool. Then it feels like you have a little bit more secondary scoring that that line feels a little bit more offensively gifted and that he, yeah, is more the guy that just like creates turnovers and is the, the safety net for those two. But yeah, I, like I'm starting to feel a little bit better about the way that they can mesh these, at least three lines. The fourth line to me is like a complete write-off. I just don't know what they do with it. Like, I know they got up to 10 minutes last night because they had a big lead in the game, but yeah. Um, I I would guess that only one of them is there come playoff time, and it's Gregor. Mm-hmm. That's it. Like Even, I, even he's been very quiet, but I... Sure, I, he's quiet, but at least he can move and do stuff. Like, I, I actually yeah. want to see him more on the penalty kill. Yeah. 
I, well, the penalty kill is one of the problems so far in the early going. So I think yeah, switching things up there a little bit makes sense. Okay. So the, here's the thing though. So I, I was thinking about this too is, so you can't take Matthews off of it, period, because they've got two centers that can really do this job effectively. Like you're not putting in Pontus Holmberg for Matthews. He wants to play on the penalty kill. I think you're absolutely acquiescing to that request. You also want him to be doing that because he's good at it. If he can learn to not do what he did last night, right? That's a that's a mistake. That's just a pure mental error. That's not a beer league penalty kill is what yeah, that was. It was it was awful. It was really, really bad. It infuriated me because the goalie had a he had the shutout going and I just hated seeing that mistake get made. But either way, this is someone who is one of the better defensive centers in the entire NHL and he gets a chance to showcase this. I I just don't like the idea that it has to be with Marner. And Kiprios was talking about this with me yesterday about how the league is moving towards having uh, a penalty killing unit that has some offense. And I was talking about with McKee on Leafs talk last night and he says, you just got to give it time. But can I just have one time where those two guys aren't on the ice together? (laughs) Can I just have one thing where you two split up? Like, well, the the other thing is that Marner and Camp were such a good unit for exactly. them. Exactly, you know that was their their top unit for a long time, and they they played really well together. So, and that's that's a deadly combination of there's some offensive danger there, but they're also really really good on the draw, good in the D zone. So you go back to that, and then is it Yarncrock or is it uh, Gregor? I mean, you you play someone with Matthews. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe you're not going to, I don't know. I, I haven't, we haven't really seen enough from Matthews and Marner, like being really, really dangerous offensively back there. There's so a couple nice moments though, where it feels threatening. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. But right now they're 21st in the NHL and I know again, whatever it's early, blah, 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 blah. It's six games in the season, but yeah, they've, they've conceded they five first though. Yeah, I mean, they they're do. using Giordano on the top unit. Like there's like the penalty kill looks problematic so far. Mm-hmm. And and if you're going to have this blue line on your penalty kill for a large stretch of the season, I, I think it it's fair to say you need the most out of your forwards, right? Your forwards have to be the star of your penalty kill. And yeah, I don't think that the Matthews-Marner combination has been quite that yet. So I, if I'm them, I'm just saying, all right, how many games of this are we going to do before you go back to the Kampf-Marner thing, where you go back to your best two guys starting your penalty kill and hopefully finishing your penalty kill like, I, I guess my patience for this is not as great as maybe some others are, you know? Like, I, um, I'm i a little over it. Um, how do you feel about the blue line pairings before you go? Um, I like Lilgren getting the chance in the top four. I like that they've pulled Klingberg back at even strength. And the one thing you can see with Klingberg is they're put, starting him in the offensive zone again and again and again. You know, his, I don't know what it, it what is today because the Leafs didn't have a lot of offensive zone draws last night just with the way the game played out. But mm-hmm. uh, the first five games, Klingberger was at over 70% of his draws were in the offensive zone, his, his zone, which I think was first in the NHL among defensemen. So, you know, they're clearly sheltering him. He's on the third pair. He's playing in the offensive zone. But that's what he is at this point in his career. He's a mm-hmm. he's an offensive weapon. He's a wild card de- defensively. Um, he brings something completely different than Giordano, obviously, with the way he can move the puck and the way he can skate. Um, so I like that pair, and I like Lilgren playing more, and we'll see with McCabe. I mean, McCabe is the one I worry about because Brody's bounced back and playing well. Riley looks really good. You know, the guys you worry about are McCabe and Giordano in that left side there. Uh, McCabe looks totally lost to me. 
Yeah. And, and I don't know, like, obviously it's got to be coming from the team where they want him to activate more frequently. And they, but they're like, how many times it's every single night where you see him joining the rush where he's just, and he falls a lot. <laughs> he's just, he's, well, he's not a great offensive player. I, so that's what, I, I wonder I if they're just saying to the D in general, like if you see an opportunity, you've got the green light, but, but it's almost like it's one of those, Maybe it's one of those team rules where it applies more to the Lilgren, Riley, Klingberg than the other guys. No, but it it seems like he has the green light as well because I, I just can't imagine. I, I just can't imagine that what he's doing right now he's doing on his own accord. Yeah. Right. Like this has to be sanctioned by the team because he's up. He's up in the rush so many times. He's pinching so many times. And and the frustrating one for me is how many times he's doing it with the the big boys on the ice and how often it's like you're seeing one of the better forwards on the team have to cover for him defensively. It's led to yeah. some bad odd man rushes. I just, I, I don't love it. I, I really don't. And if they don't have him going, this is the thing. They, they can't replace him because he's got that beautiful cap number, right? And think about it this way. If he was just sitting there at what his cap number should be, if that trade was, what was he supposed to be for, right? Yeah. Yeah. So if he yeah. was sitting there at the four, I actually think that this market where people care so, so, so much about that and partially for good reason that, yeah, he'd be higher on the, he'd be higher on the conversation scale. Well, I mean, they gave up a first round pick for him too. Right. And then Lafferty's gone was part of that trade. So, you know, they need him to be something. The other thing too, with mm-hmm. where they can't move, move him out of there is that Giordano's your other lefty. Right. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, unless you're, unless you're totally changing things and, and moving Brody down to the second pair or something, you don't have another option to put McCabe onto the third pair, mm. but there's, you know, like you can't, you can't play Giordano on, on with Lilgren on the second unit. You can't play him in 20 plus minutes. I mean, we saw what happened last year. He turned into a pumpkin in March. Mm. So you're stuck just hoping that McCabe figures it out. I don't remember him at last year when he came over. I mean, his playoff was not great, but they were playing him in so many minutes and so many difficult minutes. That's it. They he tried to ex- make him the shutdown pairing, and it was not a thing. He was exposed big time, for sure. But during the regular season when they didn't do that, I thought he was fine. Like, he was uh, under the radar, tough, blocking shots. I don't remember him running all over the place, so I'm not really sure what's different this year. He was definitely running all over the place in the playoffs, and the the, the area you saw it last season is that he always had a... He's got a bit of doing too much disease, right? Where, hey, what, you're doing a little too much. Hey, what the kids love to say, do less. Do less, fam. Or say less. Whatever. He's both. Say less, do less. <laughs> say less, fam. Uh, that's that's what I'm saying to McCabe right now is less, fam. Just less. Just a little bit less. Because last year, it was... He he really was trying to line guys up at the blue line. Remember? And and sometimes mm-hmm. he would go for those really risky hits. And when it worked out, it was gorgeous. And you felt like, good, they need this because that was what they were missing with Muzzin. Was the the odd guy that, hey, if you have your head down or if you're not paying attention, you're going to get thumped. Liked it for a team that was pretty soft last year for large stretches of the year. And they, they knew they were too soft. That's why they essentially blew up the team at the deadline. They brought in McCabe and he was supposed to be the dude that he's going to He's going to hit you. He, if you are not paying attention, he is going to punish you for it. So there were a few times where it felt like he was chasing hits, but I, I, I definitely don't remember the whole offensive, just chasing plays and joining the rush. And yeah, that, that stuff is no, this, that stuff has to go. He's got to be one of the responsible. If he's chasing the odd hit. Great. 
but they absolutely need him to be a stabilizing force. One of the guys that you can count on to put a Klingberg with, a Lilligren with, and, and let those guys handle some of the offensive stuff rather than what we're seeing right now, to me anyways. And, and the, the point of curiosity is, and I'm actually surprised, I don't think I've seen anybody ask this down at either practice or skate, like after any of the games, is why can't we just solve this riddle? Like, why can't someone just ask Keith, is, is this what you want to see from McCabe? Because I don't think I've seen it asked anywhere. Yeah, he's just like one of those guys that's been a little bit under the radar so far as everyone talks about, you know, Domi not scoring and Wall playing well. And there's just a, a Nylander and you know, there's, there's lots of other storylines and McCabe kind of. But you know what's interesting, though, is that uh, we we suspect, mm-hmm. I mean, I think everyone would predict that the Leafs are going to add a defenseman at some point this season. Sure. And I think most people would have predicted probably looking for maybe someone to replace Giordano, maybe someone on the right side. I mean, now I think what you want is a top four left shot D who can come in and potentially play with Logan, right? And push McCabe down. I mean, at, at least based on what we've seen through six games, I'd feel pretty good. At, like if McCabe's your five, and you're sheltering Klingberg at your number six. That's blue line looks pretty good. Yeah, the thing is, is I didn't like Klingberg with McCabe. <laughs> would you would you like them in fewer minutes against easier competition in the offensive zone? Maybe. Yeah, yeah maybe. I, I actually I have I really like Klingberg. I, I I get it. I understand the flaws, and I understand that he's being given the right opportunities. But to me, that's just credit to Sheldon Key for using them the right way. Because so far, like. Yeah, I I don't feel like the Leafs have had a player like him for a couple of years. And even the the Brody compare, sorry, not the Brody, the Barry comparisons that he drew when he first came here of, hey, this is going to be worse than Barry. Well, one is he actually doesn't have the weight of being traded for a fan favorite on his shoulders, right? So people aren't going to bring that up constantly. And this is a market that does it. Like, look what's happening with Gabriel Moreno right now in the World Series. Is this is something? I think it's all fan bases, but Toronto fans. They hammer it over and over and over again. And I'm guilty of it too. Like I was joining the mud. I was in the mud last night with Moreno, but he doesn't have that weight on his shoulders. And I think that he's a better power play quarterback. Like he's just, he's big out there. He walks the line extremely well. And and I think as he starts to get a little bit more comfortable, he's going to be one of the guys that tilts that Leafs blue line goal scoring stat that we keep seeing flashed up during the the games, the the graphics. Uh, I think he'll pot some this year. I know. You know, they're playing Dallas tomorrow, and we were going to have a story at The Athletic tomorrow mm-hmm. about Klingberg kind of looking at what went wrong for him there and why he's fallen off, because he was a top-pair defenseman for a long time. He was a guy that was getting Norris Trophy votes early in his career. And, you know, the interesting thing is that Klingberg knows that there's this criticism of out there of him, and, you know, he's got kind of a chip on his shoulder, and I think that's what you want. I think you want a guy that's out to prove himself. Um but, you know, I think to your point that they haven't had a guy like him, he's not like Barry. Like, he's he's built different. Mm-hmm. He plays differently. He's really a more more of a pass-first guy. Um, and he really helps on the breakout when he's back there. I was actually, I was looking at, you know, to go back to what I was talking about, sheltering Klingberg. The Leafs haven't had a defenseman like the, that they've played in the offensive zone this much ever mm. since since we have the, the, the statistics. The last, the only two I could find that were comparable was, remember TJ Brennan? Remember TJ Brennan played yeah. those games for them in 2014-15? Yeah. He was another guy they started a lot in the offensive zone. And the other one was Eric Gustafson last year, who who came in and played nine games in the regular season last year. That's kind of the vein of like the 
the weapon on the back end that Klingberg, the role that he's playing right now. And I think it makes a lot of sense given their personnel and given his skill set and how they need to use him. You just gave me so many flashbacks to conversations <laughs> I had with people about the, the Brennan stuff with the AHL numbers because he was like a point of game guy in the AHL, if you remember. I think mm -hmm. he might have even been more than a point of game. I, uh, I could mm -hmm. be off, but he was dominant down there. And it was just, I think it was a couple seasons with the Marlies where he just, kicked ass and then his Leafs tenure was really really short like they, they really didn't play him much I think he did get a goal though um yeah oh anyway uh, just debates that this this I love this is the thing I love about being a a part of a fan base that matters right where people care so deeply is that I had many TJ Brennan conversations and I bet you his I bet you he played less than 20 games for the Leafs I think he played six I think he played at least that one season. He I was just because yeah. I was just looking at this, and I was like, hey, well, "Who's another defenseman that they've sheltered like this and played in the offensive zone every there's shift?" No and he way. was the one that came to the top of the list. I was going to say, "There's no way that he played 20 games for the Leafs. No chance that he played 20 games for the Leafs." And yet, anybody who's a true blue Leaf fan remembers. Yeah, this Austin just said he had 13 games over two seasons. Mm -hmm. So yeah, and yet there were a million conversations about this guy. Yes. Yes. That made me happy today. That's a good way to go out. Uh, James, thanks for the time as always, brother. Okay. Thanks, JD. See you, pal. Uh, there goes James Myrtle, senior managing editor at The Athletic. All right, quick break. Let's come back. I'll tell you the bet you absolutely need to make for this World Series. Sportsnet 590, The Fan. I don't want to be sure on this number because I saw it this morning and I went, oh, yeah. I'm definitely doing this. All right. You're a Toronto Blue Jays fan. I mentioned all the Gabriel Moreno stuff. He's plus 1,900 to win World Series MVP right now, okay? Just, I'm just, I'm, I'm just putting it out there. I'm just putting it out there, all right? That's all. Quick break. Let's come back. Let's preview the Raptors season with my boy, Blake Murphy. All right, Blake Murphy is here. Busy time of year for you. Yeah, a little bit. New show. Are they treating you nice? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. They're Got the nice new studio. You would tell me if they were mean to you, right? Yeah. Off air, though. Yeah. Wait. They don't on laugh at my jokes. They don't let me yeah. play any sad songs on the <laughs> way back from commercial. Yeah. You're sad enough. You yeah. don't need more. You know? It's yeah. a lot of sad boy stuff. I was sad first. Yeah, you were sad first. Yeah. You were sad first. And, uh, by the way, uh, go grab a copy of Alex's new book, Prehistoric. Uh, listen to Blake Murphy on the Raptor Show, writer for Sportsnet. All Man, the things. I want to ask you about something from Alex's prehistoric book, by the way. Have sure. you read it yet? No. Okay. So it goes into a lot of detail. Wait, you make me sound like a jerk, right? No, no. It's, it's, it's I'm, I'm, I'm not all the way done it yet either. All um, the way? Anyway, I, I got it last week. Okay. I've been, here, dude, this is the thing that sucks for me is I actually like to read. Okay. I enjoy reading. But when you can sound the words out and yeah, exactly. I make little pictures in my head. <laughs> <laughs> I just, this time of year yeah, it's hard. is impossible. I don't know. Like I'm on the couch watching sports yesterday. I like the Leafs game starts at six o'clock. I, I was overload, Leafs. man. Leafs and LCS game seven and the basketball games. I, all I finished. Once. I turned off the basketball at one o'clock and I was just begging, you know, I wanted the Suns to just blow them out. I went, come on. And then the third quarter Warriors showed up and they made it a game. And then it's fun down the stretch. And Oh, uh, woe is you. The I'm, basketball was too fun. I'm just saying that it was six to one and yeah. I had to do a show in there. Yeah. And so people go like, read this book. Like, 
How dare you? I don't have the, the luxury of having time okay. to read prehistoric. Well, what okay? you need to do, though. I follow all the sports. As a as a Sonics guy yeah. and as a guy who... The, Alex and I have a big time it, 90s kinship. Continues to pick up steam that like Seattle's getting a team back sooner than later. Like probably mm. the next time the TV rights deal ends up. The most infuriating part of Alex's book is all the crazy stipulations the NBA had about expansion teams over their first couple years where mm-hmm. like you don't get the full salary cap mm-hmm. basically made it. So your only path to players was eating bad salaries. You can't mm-hmm. have the number one pick in the Iverson draft or the number one pick in the Duncan draft, even though it's a lottery. Uh, you should read that one. And then just like, like, I, I think I'm going to read the book expansion rules are good radio content anyway, but like, who do you protect and who do you draft and stuff like that? Mm-hmm. But yeah, get ready to be like pre-infuriated if the NBA dusts off even one of those rules because it was really, really bad. Here's the thing. So we're doing Raptor season preview. I don't yeah. want to go too far down this, but my NBA love will just, it'll never be the same after the Sonics left. That was my boyhood team. I had, there were, there were three things I loved growing up, like three sports team things that I just, you know, was a diehard for. And it was... The Seattle Supersonics, the Toronto Maple Leafs, and Ken Griffey Jr. And those three things Pretty I care, good trio. Those three things I cared about more than anything. And actually, I already have the lived experience though of watching the Diamondbacks win a World Series with one of my favorite <laughs> players, <laughs> Randy, Randy Johnson. Johnson. Yeah. yeah. So now I'm just living that now. Like time is a flat circle with Gabriel Moreno. Yeah. But once the Sonics went away and the way that they went away. That infuriates me more than any type of expansion rule that could ever happen. And Will you jump back on Seattle if they get a team? Here's Split with the Raptors? Here's the thing. They kept the naming rights. That mm-hmm. was part of the relocation, which was nice, right? Like to Oklahoma City's Clay Bennett and his... And they didn't... Yeah, you, on the way out the door. You can keep the yeah, team yeah, name. Nice. You don't have a team, but... Actually, it's, they it's fought for it yeah. because, yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, it'll never be the same. And and the, the part of this that just breaks me, I ran into you on the street. We talked about this a yeah. little bit. It's like they've had since since they have been gone to Oklahoma City. There's been maybe two seasons of I don't really want to watch a lot of this team. The rest has just been there's been some heartbreak, mm-hmm. but the rest has been thrilling teams. And I feel like I, you know, it, it's it's like if you're the the girl you loved started dating someone and they're doing everything that you ever wanted to do with it. It's just painful. It's, there's no, this is worse than that because this is on television every night. It's on TV every night. And the Shea element so, is like extra painful now no, dude, for you, I'd yeah, imagine, it's, it's right? Because they've got the Canadian no, star yeah. too. Yeah. And then now they've got all these picks and I, yeah, they're going to end up with some kind of a mega haul trade at some point. At some point they are going to make a deal that is going to put them back in a big three conversation with Shea, Chet, and whoever the hell they get. Siaka makes a ton of sense. I know he does. It's just, yeah, I tried to do the this time, last year. The timeline might not make line up perfectly, but... I just, if if I'm them, as, as perfect as Siakam is, I'm actually just keeping my powder dry because, say, I, I don't even really love Embiid for them, but there's just, there's going to be someone huge, right? There's going to be, like, had Giannis become available, mm-hmm. right? Had, had Giannis and the Dame thing not worked out, you're the front runner team to be able to bring Giannis because you have the most assets. Mm-hmm. So they're just sitting there like they they can offer anybody over some over the top deal for whoever yeah. they want. Whenever yeah, I they mean want. they have like thirty five picks or that's something. It, like that's that. exactly right. Um, so anyway, so like again, if a Kevin Durant, the next time a Durant becomes available, like a real needle mover, they can do one of those trades. I will say this though: the Suns gave up way too much for KD, and it's just it's just the rest of that team. Like I like Josh Okoji; he had some nice moments last night, but the rest of the team is like, Yuta was good. 
Yeah, he actually, though, he had a sick block yeah. in that game. And But the rest of that team is just... Dude, Eric Gordon and Grayson Allen looked iffy. Eric Gordon and I have the same body. You don't have as round a head, but I, uh, <laughs> I was looking at him. I went, this is what it, I, if I was six foot five and I dribbled to the basket, that's exactly what it would look like. Eric, no lift. Eric Gordon being like six foot four, six foot five and, or, and like 35 years old. And still he had one play in like semi transition where he just had like this great burst to the rim. And I was like, you could probably, he probably only has that once a game where he's got like, can hit the turbo button or whatever, but yeah. it caught me so off guard that he still had a little bit of that. I had to remind myself that they're getting Veal back and yeah. that's going to be really important. But yeah, the rest yeah. of their team, I went, whew, good luck with this. It's yeah. a little thin. Yeah, and that trade, okay, I have to just say one last thing on this. How bad of a presence was Aiton for them to move a first overall pick, someone who is clearly that talented, to bring in Yurkic, Yusuf Nurkic, who cannot move, and Grayson Allen, who cannot play? Like, it is. Yeah, the Allen thing's tough. Nurkic, actually, that makes sense to me when he's healthy. Like, they, when Beal's there, they don't need yeah. a center who does anything other than set screens. Except for this is when they are trying to do pick and pops with Eubanks, and I'm going, oh, actually, Aiton would have knocked that down. Oh, Aiton yeah. would have knocked that down. Oh, Aiton would have yeah. knocked that down. I and mean, the answer nobody wants to hear is that it was as much of anything about the way the cap sheet looked after Beal, and they needed to get out of Aiton's contract. Mm. And Nurkic and Allen was better than mm. sending him off to Detroit for nothing mm. or something like that. They, they, they could have, this, by the way, I just, this is absolutely a case where they could have, speaking of the Sonics, the <laughs> Thunder, they should have learned the lesson of just eat the money for yeah. this year, go with Aiton, and then worry about that next year. Yeah. Okay. Like you're, you're, if you're all in for Kevin Durant in his age 35 season, keep the fastly superior talented in player. In a year where to, you know, new owner trying to make yeah. a splash, no, trying to self broadcast all their games. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, no. Do yeah. not love it. I like Nurkic as a fit. I just think mm. he's not as good a player as Aiden. He's, and I hate Aiden. I I was living in fear the Raptors would trade for Aiden. It would have been. I never really understood that one, oh. like just the rumors of it. But my God, I would tell you this: if there were five players that I do not want to watch every single night in the entire NBA, Aiden is maybe two by Harden. Where it's like if the Raptors announced a trade, Harden would be. It was like. When I was talking about this with a buddy the other day, but when the Raptors traded for Rudy Gay and I went, no, this is the worst thing possible. This is the player that I least like to watch in the entire NBA. And he came here and I'll never forget. I was so against it, right? I was very against it. And this was with the time where I still got to be around the Raptors. I actually covered his first game was against mm. the Clippers. And I remember all the people, all the other media people that were around when I was like, I hate this trade. I hate this trade. Everyone else met me with, well, what else were the Raptors going to do? I was like, that's good motivation for a yeah. trade. He's like, well, how, who else are they going to get was the argument yeah, for we're, we're bored of Jose Calderon. Yeah, that, that was it. It was like, what else Ed are they going to do? Davis isn't going to have a 12-year ah. career. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, all right. So Raptors, they're yeah. here. They're back. And let's just be honest. The hype for this team has been pretty muted. And I know from... I, I, like I said, I follow every sport, so I don't get to watch a ton of the preseason games. But I follow along with what was going on. I was like, oh, okay, McDaniels is looking good for them. And I listened to Darko on your show yesterday talk about how they're going to... It's tough to be Darko in the NBA. Like, it's, you know, but I, I don't want to yeah. say Coach There's Rand. even like a for Milicic, yeah. but, and it spells out, you know, whatever, regressed, whatever. Uh, he's got to um, have something else. He's got he's a bit of a rebrand for him because... Yeah, and even like Ryakovich, like it's everyone's brain is going to go to Stoyakovich. Yeah, it's too much. Hit the pager like I play with Stoyakovich. It's, it's too many yeah. things. So, yeah, I'm, I've been calling him Darko, yeah. and uh, it's just a 
but then you got to explain it to other NBA people where you're like, yeah, you know, Darko with the Raptors are like Darko played for the Raptors. Yeah. No, no, he'll, he'll be the new Darko. So they've had a successful preseason. I think that there's a little bit more buzz just with a new coach, knowing mm-hmm. that they're going to go to 10 guys. I heard him on your show yesterday saying that they don't want to play anybody 38 to 40 minutes. Barnes looked good in the preseason. Real good. Which yeah. is always, it's hey, it's better than not looking good in the preseason. He did not, not look great last preseason. So Exactly. I would rather have a player look good in the preseason than not. I'm not taking too much from it. But let's just start with this. Um, what's the biggest story of the season to you? Like what today... What is going to be the thing that you care most about with this version of the Toronto Raptors? Because I think a lot of people are very curious what that actually is going to look like. Yeah, look, this is it's an interesting season because on the court and with the personnel and a new head coach, I I do find them really interesting. I think it's Mm -hmm. going to be fun to cover them day to day. It's going to be fun to get into the kind of nitty gritty of what they're trying to do and who's developing how. But Mm -hmm. big picture, the the number one story around this team is the future of Pascal Siakam. And it's not just does he sign an extension today or tomorrow or before the deadline or whatever. He is like the piece that will tell us what the Raptors overall plan is. And we've kind of been waiting for that for a couple of years as they slowly transitioned out of the championship core and kept a couple of those pieces. Fred was obviously the biggest domino to fall now in terms of, Hey, we're maybe we're not turning the page, but we're losing a part of this page and we're okay. Not replacing it, not getting something on the way out. Um, What Pascal Siakam's future is, is the biggest question this team faces Masai and Bobby face, um, you know, whether it's an extension or re-upping them in the summer, I think not only is it a really big question asset management wise, because you did just lose Fred and you you've seen a lot of guys walk for not a big return, but if Siakam gets an extension at some point, I think that tells you a lot about how things are going for this team. So I do think in addition to being this huge strategic piece um, that'll tell us something about direction, it'll also be a litmus test for how they think all of these pieces are blending together and how, you know, whether Scotty's on a timeline where it makes sense to max Siakam and try to run that out together, um, whether the chemistry between those two and with Darko is clicking. So as much as anything happens on the court and obviously on the court informs this stuff, but it's hard not to look like Siakam has a case for like a top five Raptor all time at this point with the championship and the longevity when no, like, I don't think he's there yet, but like you could make the case for it. And he's headed into unrestricted free agency at a time where, like if you if they decided to pivot off of that like there's not enough without him to to be like really really excited yet so um that's where my eyes are and until an extension happens or until a trade happens my eyes are going to stay on that because it's the biggest determination determining factor of what this front office is thinking and we haven't had an answer on that for a couple years yeah so i think overall the direction of the franchise and picking a lane this this is the inflection point it it, It has to be that's the take you have too many free agents for it not to be that's what i was gonna say is we've i know that a lot of you are thinking that's what you said last year and that's what maybe even when you and i were doing a show together when we did it two years ago we asked bobby webster remember we are one of our first shows together was hey bobby what's the direction of the franchise he's like ah we'll see yeah (laughs) that was two years ago so I understand that there's a little bit of, well, this is the last dance for the Toronto Maple Leafs feeling to this, right? Or this is the where Ross Atkins and Mark Shapiro have pressure on them season. Uh, this is different. They're they're forced into making these decisions. Pascal Siakam is an understri- is going to be an unrestricted free agent. They only have six guys on a contract yeah. for next year. OG, Gary Trent, like the, the whole team is being determined based on this year. So uh, like, that's not even it to me because that's just there. Like that's the inevitability. That's not even like a story. To, to me, it's what you said about, does he fit with Scotty Barnes? Mm-hmm. And, okay, you know me. I read into what people say. I'm watching your interview with Darko. 
Coach Darko yesterday. And Will asked him, how do Scotty and Pascal make each other better? And he just didn't, he didn't go into it. He, he kind of ducked the question and he started talking about the rest of the team and all the other guys. And this is the big question to me is, can these two guys become a two-headed monster of just constant rim pressure? Because if I'm starting to see Scotty Barnes and Pascal Siakam take turns and a lot of settling for mid-range jump shots, I know it's not working immediately. Like this has to be constantly one of these guys is at the rim. And I, I heard you two on your show talking about how Scotty Barnes can be super effective as a roller. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm very curious to see if they can make a two-man game out of these yeah, two guys. Yeah, you don't see a lot of 4-4 four, four pick That's and it. roll, right? And the Raptors have gotten a ton of use over, I mean, really the whole Lowry era and then into the Fred era of like big, small pick and roll. But mm-hmm. what you can do with Siakam and Barnes, especially when you have Pirtle on the floor, the spacing's so tight, but the center is going to be guarding Pirtle, right? So you're going to have two wings or forwards guarding Scotty and Pascal. Um, the problem it, is you can't stretch Pirtle out to the three-point line. You can't, but you can have him in the dunker or you can have... Have him, you know, you can do some screen the screen or stuff. It, it's really clunky space wise. It's really clunky space wise. Weirdly, a thing that you can do though with poor spacing, like poor offensive spacing around the perimeter, you can kind of turn that on the defense sometimes by setting your actions lower on the floor so that there's not like you, we, you were talking about Nurkic. You would have seen that a bunch last night where he screens and then he rescreens, but it's like at the restricted area mm-hmm. almost, and there's just like no way to recover there. Um, it gets clunky, and like Pascal and Scotty would have to hit a lot of those floater range shots. But there's some stuff you can do. Um, but either way, to your point, there's a lot that they can do together offensively. That's not just like, oh, come down the floor and whichever one of them has the better matchup, kick it to them and clear out. Like there's a lot they could design together, I think. Yeah, to me, offensively, and, and I know this is, seems overly simplistic, but what I want to be able to see is that those two guys, that they can play with each other, mm-hmm. like that they can have that two-man game together, but that also... We see lineups where we've always talked about like Raptors, small ball lineups, whatever. I kind of got to see that this year. Like I have to be able to see. I think uh, you're going to see Scotty at the five. Son. But that's but that's it. I have to be able to see it because when you look at the starting lineup, this is the issue. Raptors were what? 28th last year. I think I wrote it. That, yeah. 28th last year in three point percentage. Mm-hmm. How is that going to improve when you have a lineup that has your starting lineup is Dennis Schroeder, Scotty Barnes. And Jakob Pertl in it. They shot under 35% in the preseason on threes yeah. as well. And that, Le- that happened the year before, too. That yeah. was a big harbinger of things to come, and, was and the Raptors shot extremely poorly in last year's preseason. It and extended into the year. Last year was in the, the like, we shoot a lot of threes era. Mm-hmm. It was the first time a team had finished 500 shooting as poorly on threes as the Raptors did. Yeah. Like, you just can't win games at 33.5%. No. So, so that's it to me. It's kind of like... How do those guys mesh together and can they mesh together as both of them basically being a front court with the flexibility of OG being able to defend some of the other team's bigs, mm-hmm. right? Like him at the five from an offensive standpoint, but OG at the five from a defensive standpoint, a bunch of guys like switching out, which listen, I like having Pirtle on the team. I didn't love the trade. I still don't love the trade. I, I just thought it was a weird it's one. It's separate of the quality of the player, right? Like trading sure. a first round pick for the right to give Pirtle four years, 80 yeah. million. It, is- I don't love it. I, st- I still don't love it. I, I'm never, I'm never going to love it. There's never going to be a case where I end up going back to it, but I just, yeah. I think you're going to start Pirtle in games. I wonder if he's going to be closing these games. And if you're looking at a lineup, that's going to be involving more of the shooters. Cause it's an interesting team where, You've now got more shooting on the bench, assuming that some of these guys stay healthy. Some of these guys are still usable, right? There's some older dudes that Mm -hmm. in theory can shoot, but in 
practice might all be too old and broken down. Yeah, we'll <laughs> but, see with Auto. Yeah, but, uh, and Temple, yeah. like, it just, there's, there's yeah, a couple. I don't of, think Temple's going to play much. Yeah, but. you think? <laughs> it's like, but, but they have. It went in preseason, he's running the 905 lineup. Yeah, it's, it's, my, it's my guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, guess what? Big win for the guys who cover the team. Yeah, because he's huge. like a, no, he's one of the most, quote, yeah. uh, easy to talk to Runs guys. the union. Yeah, that's what I mean. All it's sorts just, of what, a, what a win for you guys in that no, regard. But in, in terms of closing lineups, I, I think it is fascinating because I think we know, barring foul trouble, Scotty OG and Pascal are going to be on the floor. Yep. But you could make a case for Pirtle coming off for Precious with certain defensive assignments. You could make the case for Pirtle coming off and putting Gary Trent in so you have a little bit more shooting. You could also make the case for Gary Trent to come in over Dennis Schroeder if the game is playing out a certain way and you like Scotty Barnes or Pascal Siakam's matchup and they're, they're looking good as playmakers. Um, it, it's kind of... It's interesting because for the last couple of years, even though the Raptors have had a lot of questions, we generally knew who would close games. Mm-hmm. It was, I mean, health dependent, but it was usually the same five guys closing games out um, when healthy. So this year, I think only three of those spots are locked in. I think, you know, if you have a lead, yes, Jakob Pertl is your most traditional big man. But depending on the opponent, like being able to switch with OG, Pascal, Scotty and Precious could be really interesting, right? You you could do some stuff there. Um, you know, I don't think Gary's going to be out there in many defense first lineups, but he does have the the kind of ball hawk ability. And certainly if you're losing, you need Gary on the floor. I think closing lineups are going to have to involve one of Grady Dick or Gary Trent. If you're trailing, for sure. Yeah, because it just, well, again, I don't see how the spacing works with Dennis, Scotty, Siakam, Pirtle, and OG. Well, here, do you want to do one big number? Because it's related sure, to yeah, this. Sure, yeah, hit me. Okay. Do you need to explain to your audience what one big number is? Well, they know? It's, I was going to say that we, Blake and I, when we used to do a show together, Blake, every show would come up with one big number that, yeah, it was a stat that was very, very telling of a, a bigger narrative. So what do you have? 94.5. Okay. That is how many points per hundred possessions. So the offensive rating mm-hmm. that the Raptors had in the half court last year, which is by the way, for people at home, it's not real good. bad. Yeah. It was, <laughs> that's, it was, that's like a, even me who watched all the games and who tracked the team last year went, there's absolutely no way that that's their, that's, that's true. The only well, five teams worse than them oh. were the five worst offenses overall in basketball. Yeah. And four of those five were tanking. The other one was the Orlando Magic who so were not were trying tanking. to be very bad. The other yes. teams were Houston, trying. Charlotte, Detroit, San Antonio. Yikes. Uh, yes. And then Orlando who... You know, we're not outright tanking, but we're not very, we're not ready to be good yet. Um, the gap between Toronto and the next playoff team was 2.2 points of offensive rating. So that, that's not huge, but like there was a big gap between Toronto and like the next worst half court offense among playoff teams. I think the points for optimism with this team are, are pretty clear and like, I'm very confident this is going to be a top 10 defense, maybe even a top five defense. That's I think, one of my I think, questions, so I think they have the personnel and like, we know they're going to run in transition. They've got the guys for it. They've that's, that's always what they've prioritized. But last year, the Raptors finished 500 and scraped together an average offense with this bad, a half court offense. It do, it's not sustainable. It doesn't happen. No other team has done it. It's not a way to build your team. So that, that 94.5 has to be up closer to like 97, 98 mm-hmm. for this team to have a chance to win enough games. Oh, dude, you've already, you're already hearing Darko talk about moving the ball, moving the mm-hmm. ball, moving the ball. And l- listen, do I like the way that the Raptors handled Fred Van Vliet? No, because he left without you getting an asset back. He's a guy who turned himself into an all-star point guard. Again, one of the better Raptors in franchise history, and he walked. Tough. Tough all around. What I will say is, 
If there is a bit of an argument for ball movement and for some of the late game half court stuff is I've never really been a big Fred in the half court guy. The stuff at the rim is not great. The pull-up shot is fine, but it's, he's not Kyle Lowry. And if we're talking about late game stuff or half court mm-hmm. stuff, Fred, let's just, I'll just say it. Last year, he was going on podcasts complaining about his role in the offense when he was asked to play off the ball. He wanted to be on the ball. And you know who else needed to be on the ball? Siakam. You know who else needed to be on the ball? Gary Trent Jr. Scotty Barnes. Scotty Barnes. You know who else wanted? OG Ananobi. So I'm hoping that in bringing in Dennis Schroeder, that one of the byproducts of having him be the point guard, or at times Scotty Barnes being the point forward, is that you just have two guys that play with a little bit less selfishness that the ball moves a little bit more and that you see different Raptors get involved later in these games and that the half-court offense doesn't feel as stagnant with Fred kind of operating at the top and over-dribbling. So my counters to that would be, I mean, one would be, was Fred doing that because Fred wanted to do that or was it a byproduct of not having a, I think it's a good both. offense? Yeah, it's, I, I, I think agree. it's both. I think it's both. And the other thing is, is like, yes, you maybe get a little bit more of that willing to speed up the floor and get off the ball with Dennis Schroeder. But teams are just like, like even last year, last year was his lowest usage rate of his career with the Lakers. And he shot more corner threes than he'd ever shot. He was only 35% from the corners, which is not like when you compare that to Fred, who was like 36, 37% on above the break threes, like the way that that downgrade for your spacing, if Fred got off the ball and that's an if, but teams would respect him up to 30 feet and like chase him off the ball in a way that in a key game on the line possession this year, I think very much they will say if Dennis is off the ball, he can be the guy that beats us and you live with that. Now it, the sum of all of that could still be a positive. I think we'll also see, you know, I think part of the the minutes idea as well is, well, Pascal's not going to be on his 40th minute and gassed at the end of every fourth quarter uh, anymore. Scotty Barnes was awesome in the clutch last year. It's a small sample, but but he's a guy who seems to have a nose for, for carving out those possessions late. So I think the sum of all of that could be a positive, but I do, I worry about a team that had no spacing last year, downgrading the spacing uh, still in the It's weird because the, the spacing is downgraded with the starting unit, but it's improved with what we're going to see with the bench guys. Yeah, the bench the bench units, I don't know if they'll be like positive, but they're, they're going to be fun. Like if you, if Scotty's at the five or it's like Scotty Precious four or five, because I, I think the one thing we can pull from the rotations in the preseason is it's going to be Scotty in the bench as like that transition. Like he's not going to go bench mob full lineup substitution because they just don't have the guys. It's, mm-hmm. it's just not a good enough group, but that kind of, let's get, whether it's Malachi and Gary or Gary and Grady and then uh, a big and, and McDaniels um, with Scotty, like those, those looked really fun. And I think those will have some, some fun spacing, and okay. stuff, but they're only going to be playing against opposing benches. Well, so. I was going to say though, this is why I also don't have a ton of optimism about this team working out and not taking the pivot direction. One is I just feel like it's too many contracts to try to get done. Like from a, cap, a lot. from a cap standpoint, for them to give Siakam 200 mil, for them to re-up OG, for them to re-up Gary Trent Jr., and then have Scotty's contract be a year from now where he's off the rookie deal because he's going to be next he's got year. Two, he's got this year and, and next, next year, year left but on his will, rookie deal. Yeah, but yeah. they'll be extending him. Oh, yeah. He'll get the max extension. Yes. And I just don't think that the team has a high enough ceiling where they're going to be able to justify paying everybody. Mm-hmm. And then they're not good enough where if you remove a piece one of those guys that they can sustain it and all of a sudden get like appreciably better. Yeah, I think I think the weird... The the tough needle that they're going to try to thread here maybe is either 
and look, they're good and they just justify it and the, they handle the cap the way most teams do, which is we'll figure it out later. Mm-hmm. If you like, it's better to have guys and need to move off of them than to not have guys at all. And which have is to, fine until you start losing Fred Van Vliet yep. to the free agency. Yeah. Um, the other thing could be, can this team get good enough where you still like what it looks like only keeping two of those three guys? So and this that's, is it. that's tough, but that's, I think the needle they're, they're maybe going to try to thread here. So, so that's it. And here's, here's why I know it's going to be impossible. I think that there's a reality where what you said about Barnes at the end of games and the clutch stats is that that's a real thing. Because if if I told you right now, like, what's the thing that you actually have the most faith in with the Raptors? It's can Scotty Barnes get two feet in the paint? <laughs> because if he can get two feet in the paint, he's going to score. Siakam, I think, is still a guy that settles for the jump shot too frequently in crunch time instead of going to the basket and initiating the contact and finishing at the rim. And I think that's part of the reason why he is just not an elite closer in the NBA is I think that the faith that he has in his pull-up game is a little over. Yeah. He, he, he just, I hate saying this, but it's like he believes himself too much in those situations. Possible it's an overcorrection to the lack Maybe. of spacing too, right? Because what does a lack of spacing mean? It's a, it's not just no three-point yeah. shooting. It's more more hands and more bodies near the paint. 100%. Right? Like they can run that shell defense around the paint when Pascal which faces up or works posts up or whatever. so well, which yeah. works so well. I think it's harder to do if Scotty Barnes turns into a better version of Scotty. If Scotty takes that step, right? If it becomes very clear that he is someone that they need to give more of these repetitions to, he is the guy that you can actually build a team around, I think that it is going to, it's weirdly going to force the timeline change. And it's going to force you to make that decision with with Siakam where you say, we can't give you $200 million and then also build the same team. That's why the biggest question is, can these two fit together? Because mm-hmm. if they are actually pulling the best out of one another, if they are able to play together, if the two of them finishing games and it, it doesn't feel like it's one guy's turn, the next guy's turn, then you're, you're gravy. I just don't think that that ends up playing out. And the thing that we've sort of missed here in this conversation is last year, as the youth say, the vibes were bad. The vibes mm-hmm. were off. And Masai talked about it and the chemistry issues. And now they're going to have a 10-man rotation. And now they're going to have a coach who focuses on moving the ball more. But why were the vibes bad last year? Why was part of the reason why Fred Van Vliet ended up you know, having some of the responsibilities. Everybody's in contract times. I I don't think that that's going to materially change with Siakam at some points this year. He's going to want to get his. I know he wants to win. I'm not questioning whether or not he wants that, but he's going to want to make sure that he has his stats. OG clearly has wanted more for himself for a couple of years. I'm not sure Gary Trent Jr. in a contract year coming off the bench and then potentially not closing games is going to work out. Like yeah, my, my sales job to Gary, and I said this last year when they had to decide who comes off the bench more. too, is like, yeah, yeah you, do you want to be the number five usage starter or do you want to be the number one usage bench guy? Yeah, but he won't be the number one usage bench guy. Well, sorry, yes, I guess he would be, but... It's going to be Scotty Barnes that's running those second units like we talked about. Yeah, but who's going to be running all the actions with them? Yeah. It's usually going to be Gary Trent. I, that uh-huh. would be my sales job to him is like, trust us that you're still going to get, you're still going to play 28, 30 minutes a game and you're going to be, you know, there's no such thing as a bad shot for Gary Trent Jr. But those bench lineups. So mm-hmm. that would be my sales job to him. But yeah, the, these things, and this is the thing where like the vibes are unquestionably better around this team right now. It's fun down to practices. The first couple preseason games have been great, but, mm-hmm. and, and coach Darko has even alluded to this is like, yeah, that's, that's really easy to manage 
4-0 in the preseason. Mm-hmm. What happens the first time, you know, we, we even saw Gary Trent made, you know, he was asked about it, so he wasn't complaining, but he was like, yeah, of course I'd prefer to start, but like, this is what it is and I'll make the best of it. What happens the first... to sit on the bench when you're winning games yes. too, by the way. Like, as soon well, as the Raptors the start what, losing... What happens yeah. the first time Dennis Schroeder doesn't close a game and mm-hmm. isn't happy about that or Gary Trent doesn't get, you know, enough minutes off the bench that game or they lose three in a row. That's, mm-hmm. you know, this is not unique to Raptors, but it, it is the one like, okay, the vibes are way better, but like what happens the first time there's a gripe or the first time there are a couple losses or whatever, because you're right. Like all these things. And like, it's not like Pascal's numbers are going to go down dramatically, mm-hmm. but he led the league in minutes the last two years. So like, obviously Thought the counting, the counting stats are going to be less mm-hmm. and maybe he's better rested and more efficient late in the fourth quarter. But like, yeah, guys are, if everyone, if all the starters are playing fewer minutes, they're going to have lesser numbers. Mm-hmm. And that is, that's going to be really easy to sell to everyone if they win 45 games. If they win 35 games, I think we're going to hear a lot of the same stuff we heard last year. Okay, so you know one of the top Raptors stats last year, if you were following Siakam, was people love doing the 24-7-5 and mm-hmm. with Siakam. Or they went, you know who else does that in the NBA? It's only LeBron, Luka, Jokic, and Giannis. Yeah, the Thad Young yeah. stat. The yeah. only players to average 13.1 points, 5.7 yeah. rebounds, 2.3 assists. So if you're Siakam... You want to be able to have that under your belt. Yeah, you and want to make all losing, NBA again. That's it. If you're losing those minutes and you're having more ball movement, maybe the assists tick up a little bit, but maybe you're not averaging 24. Maybe you're averaging 21, 22. The, the hope would be for him, and this is how you sell it to him again, is like, mm-hmm. yeah, but you're going to get those points more efficiently. Maybe you get fewer shots, but you yeah. get less defensive attention. You're fresher late in games. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is this is a, like a really big, like, yes, we're going to talk about Darko's rotations and his scheming and his plays and his adjustments and stuff like that. But a huge, huge component of a head coach's job is managing exactly this kind of thing. Like, how do you, how do you get a guy to leave some numbers on the table in a walk uh-huh. year while believing that it's actually going to help his stock because you're going to win enough games? Again, I, I think there's a path to it. Mm-hmm. I'm it's not just saying- a, it's a... It's, narrow one. It's a narrow path, especially considering that you as an organization didn't just immediately hand him his $200 million. You're making him earn it. And so, and, and, and this goes to all professional sports, right? This is what I've said a billion times. It's like, it's the Nylander thing where, okay, he's playing great. And you're saying, wow, he's in a contract year. Maybe we should reward this guy. Okay, well, maybe it was the contract, but if you give him the money, will it change? Do you, the Raptors are a little different in the sense of if you give Siakam that money, it's really deciding what your future is for mm-hmm. at least the next couple of seasons. And, and he's not a guy that I think you worry about. I'm not worried about changing, that at all. Yeah. But what I'm saying is the bigger issue is when you're asking guys to sacrifice, right? Like if you're saying to William Nylander one day, hey, we want to take you off power play one because we want to try to get Max Delmi going. He's like, yeah, except for I'm a free agent this My year money. and maybe that costs me a big money. And if you're Siakam and there are certain points in this game where you're saying – hey, we need you to be the one that sacrifices. He's like, so you want me to sacrifice when you're not showing me the money and the faith that I am this franchise's player. Mm-hmm. And I think that's going to be especially difficult to navigate. And and, and that, that one, honestly, relationship-wise, is probably more of a Messiah and Pascal one than yeah. a Darko and Pascal one because it has to be a, well, how could look, not man, be, yeah. I've changed my role yeah. a bunch of times and I've over-delivered on everything. everything. And, like, you know, if I do this and if I take this step back, am, am I still going to be taken care of? And I don't think Siakam has to worry about, like, oh, you're going to hit the market and there's only, like, a three-year $75 no, million deal for you. He's going to get paid. But, I, yeah, like, do you get the fifth year do you get the full max or, or the mini max you, like those are you and i are big are real labor questions. guys yeah. you and i are big labor guys if you just 
I know that it's hard for people to think about it this way because Siakam's looking at $200 million. And most of us are looking for the 3% raise instead of a 2% raise. But if you over-deliver at your job year over year over year and you do everything that your bosses ask of you essentially and you're constantly over-delivering on that and then you go in for the raise and they say, well, let's wait and see. How will that make you feel? That's just a human thing. Mm -hmm. Like that's a human thing for what Siakam is going to feel this year. And so, and imagine this was all within the confines of we might fire you, <laughs> you know, because that's what Siakam has been dealing with this entire offseason is mm-hmm. people around the office are like, are you, oh, when you show up for work, they're like, oh, here? nice. Yeah. Like, no, it's great to have you around. The Siakam story to me is just, if, if we're doing probability, I, I just don't see a scenario where he, no, I don't. I have a harder time seeing the scenario where he finishes the season with, uh, with the Raptors and he and OG both resign. Yeah, and it's less I'm, than 100%, that's for sure. And it's, if I'm the Raps, I think the fit with OG is a little bit more clear on this team moving forward from basically every single standpoint around a team that is built with Scotty Barnes in mind. And so... An all-defense guy who hits 40% of his corner threes. Who can defend pretty, bigs and take some who, of that What pressure. lineup can't he play in around that, the NBA? That, that's exactly it. And also, it makes more sense, too, in a league where it's pretty flat this year. You know, you look mm-hmm. around the league and everyone's pretty imperfect. And Every team a, in the West is going to win 44 games. Right, there's a shot for teams to win. And if you're looking for another creator and scorer type, you might look at Siakam and say, hey, this... Puts us over the top. I don't think you want to trade with, let's say, the Miami Heat. But I was actually thinking, why is that not... Why is there not a conversation about what the Heat were going to give up for Damian Lillard for Siakam? Because what, like all the reporting is what they were going to give up for Lillard was just like not remotely enough. Yeah, but I'm saying that if you're giving up three picks and Tyler Hero and I don't know, I just think it's... it's a, it's better than what the Hawks were offering. By the way, did you see Pat Riley have to do the the Masai JV? You're yeah. better than Drummond. I never, I was yeah. never trading you thing yeah. with Tyler Hero. Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah. Of course, no Tyler Hero. Just believe whatever you want to believe. Yeah. <laughs> we would never trade you for yeah, Damian Lillard. You. Anyway, um, okay. Oh, your bag being packed at your yeah, locker? Yeah, yeah. Coincidence? No, yeah. uh, your nameplate already gone? Yeah. yeah. Uh, don't worry about that. Anyways, <laughs> let's take a quick break. Let's talk about the X factors. Sportsnet 590, the fan. Uh, so anyway, that was good. We talked about the Raptors during the break. That's great. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's rapid fire this. You and I can, uh, brevity is neither of our strong suits, but. But they, they play you off the air in mm-hmm. 13 minutes. So. That's right. They do. Oh, we could keep going if I really wanted to, but I'm not going to keep your time. Um, so what's the thing that you're actually most excited to see this season? Scotty, really, like yeah, what, okay. what that development looks like. Like last year was, even if you still saw all the bright spots and were high on him long-term, as I was, it was unquestionably a disappointment, disappointing sophomore year coming off his rookie year. You know, stats plateaued. I thought most of the skill, there was some skill development, but mm-hmm. um, not as much as you'd like to see coming off of that year. I think he's looked tremendous in preseason, the chatter around the team. And of course they're going to say this, but mm-hmm. last year, you know, those, those kind of years. And this is going to be the same question with Manoa. They can go two ways, right? They mm-hmm. can, that can be the chip on your shoulder and the reminder and the motivation you need to push to another level, or you can withdraw. And the chatter is that Scotty took that the right way. And it certainly looks like that so far. So I'm, I'm really excited to see what this year looks like for him. My answer is attached to this and I'm not sure how often we'll see it, but I, I hope we do, which is Scotty and the shooters. Let me see what it looks like. Just let me see what it looks like if you put Scotty out there with Grady Dick, with maybe McDaniels, with Gary Trent, 
and then maybe like a little Malachi is action because they they have to at least play Malachi a little bit more. They're gonna this play year. him. That's what, that's what I'm saying. At, let me just. Can I just see it? Can mm-hmm. I just see what it looks like when Scotty Barnes has four guys around him? Maybe it's OG that's in the mix. Whatever. Can I see what it looks like when Scotty Barnes has four guys around him that? If are given an open shot, can knock it down. I just want to see it. Can I just see Scotty and the shooters? You because can't. You're gonna see it. You're I gonna know, see lineups like here's, that. Here's the thing. This is the part of me that I'm a little sad about. I'm infinitely more curious to see Scotty in the bench than Scotty in the starters, and I think that that's really telling about where the direction of the franchise is going to go. I would just warn not to make too many conclusions from it because they will be playing against opposing bench units, okay. and I don't know that. Uh, yeah. I don't know that Malachi and Grady are, are playing the same way against opposing starters as <laughs> yeah. they do against opposing bench pieces just yet. Yeah, but I also don't think that this team, like, the you play to win the game. Yeah. All right? You play to win the game. And if the eventual goal is to win a championship, to me, the path to that is still building a team around Barnes and younger players with OG potentially attached to this than it is the probability of Siakam and Barnes meeting up and OG all fitting in some kind of a timeline where they can also add pieces around the three of them. Like those three guys would be great if there was another guy, yeah, but it's you're just, not going to have the cap. Th- that's what I'm saying. It's like, that. there's no other ability to bring someone else in. Um, who is your X factor player? <sighs> Probably Grady Dick, just as a means, just as a matter of like, how much does he actually play? How much does he help the spacing? I thought he had, despite not shooting tremendously well, uh, uh, I mean, he shot the three. Okay. Just not a ton of them. Uh, I thought he had a really solid preseason. I, I think he does more offensively than just shoot like smart screener, smart off the ball mover. Um, you know, defensively, all you can really say right now is that he tries, um, which, you know, for a six, seven shooting specialist goes a long way, but, mm-hmm. but isn't there yet. Um, so yeah, I think if he's a, you know, a day one guy who can get rotation minutes, even if it's like 10, 12 minutes a game, I think that helps. And, and to your point about some of those bench lineups, it, it gives you some, some breathing room there and some more flexibility to play Gary more minutes with the starters because then you have that Grady element off the bench. Okay, so I agree. And there's probably a bigger case for like what Dennis Schroeder does or, sure. you know, what it's, but Grady Dick is the, yeah, the I had to split the middle. Cause the other option was Javon Freeman Liberty and you would have shut my mic <laughs> yeah, off. I definitely would have trust me. We've already had <laughs> you and I privately have already had too many G league conversations. Yeah. So for me, I'm going to go with my second option, which is precious. Okay. So he's 24. Now we've seen flashes of, Whoa, there could be a really elite defender in here. We've seen, a good finisher, but not a great finisher. And we've seen that dissipate at times. Mm-hmm. We've seen some kind of shot emerge, but then it's gone away. Last year, he had the injury. I, it just Last year, it felt like one of those years where a guy just cannot find his footing yeah. and he could just never catch up. He could never get up to speed with the rest of the team. And let's be real. This was the centerpiece of the Lowry trade. And, you, and it's decision year on him too. because he's a team RFA. option, right? RFA. So, yes, but yeah, but that's what I'm saying though. They, he got a team option for next year. No, no, it's he's the, RFA. Okay, so I want to see if Precious Achua is an actual staple in the rotation where you're feeling like when we're talking about the Scotty and the bench units or just different bench units, if he's coming in and you're feeling like, yes, this is awesome. Now you've actually got your front court sort of settled for the next couple of years going, we have Pirtle and we have Achua and this part of it we don't have to really worry about. I think it's kind of a big question, like a raw player with a ton of upside where you can squint and see a lot of good, but in practice, especially last year, it was a lot of underwhelming, disappointing. I don't know what the future is for you on this team. Yeah, it's just been, it's been a lot of, well, the tools are very obvious and Mm -hmm. does it contribute to winning? Well, only here and there. And I think, you know, I loved Precious's quotes yesterday from practice about he like correcting a reporter and being, no, not I think. 
I am one of the best one through five defenders in the league. And we've seen it. We've seen him guard Embiid and Harden in the same game or in the same quarter or whatever. But you have to see that with more consistency. To your point about the finishing, like, it's just got to be better. Like, he's one of the worst finishers in the league among big men. And I get it. They have him playing more perimeter-oriented at times. No, but, it's, but, but it's, in it's this like that. in this new environment where it's more about passing and quick movement and he's going to be asked to do some elbow work and stuff like that, mm-hmm. um, yeah, his, his finishing is going to have to improve. His passing is going to have to improve. I, I think there's a, a guy in there that could safely earn the mid-level as a, as a free agent next mm-hmm. summer. Like, we just saw, I don't know, Isaiah Stewart got it. Um, Zeke Naji got a little Isaiah less Stewart than Isaiah Stewart is good, all right? I'm, like, I'm just uh, saying that, like, if that's the bar, like, yeah. pre- when you factor in the defensive end, like, like Precious Achua could be looking at that contract and be sure. like, yeah, I can I can aim for that. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I think that's a good pick. I think yeah. it's uh Well, here's the thing. The, the reason why I picked him for X-Factor is yeah. that I could see him not on the team next year, and I could see him being someone that if we're talking about that pivot to team younger, right? Mm-hmm. Version Raptors 2.0, where they pivot to the 25 and under guys. When Precious Jua, 24 years old, fits the timeline. And if you think that he can be a top five defender, mm-hmm. and if he knows it, then there's a reality where you could have a Scotty Barnes, OG Ananobi, Precious Jua defensive closing lineup. Yep. And that's a pretty damn good start for what you're trying to envision the next version of Raptors six foot eight. And and I think like we're going to see a little bit of that this year, like games where he outplays Pirtle or it's not a good Pirtle matchup or whatever. Obviously Siakam would be in those closing lineups as well, but like they're going to give like Jakob Pirtle got a four year, $80 million deal. They're not going to play Jakob Pirtle 36 minutes a game and they're not going to hesitate to not have him closing. There is opportunity there for precious to carve out more. I am a little worried that because of the Scotty Barnes, I I agree with you of, I want to see what he looks like as a role man. I just, I, I have my questions about how that works with Pirtle and you can say the dunker spot all yeah. you want thing, but it's also this. Pirtle's a really good screener. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of hard. To, like, that's the part of Scotty Barnes's game that we don't know about. Yeah, he's got big hands. He gets yeah. in the paint. He can score. But he, can you set a screen? We did it too much because there was that stretch where Raptors, they were like screen assist with JV yeah. constantly where it was like, JV, hey, he doesn't play any defense and this is a weird yeah. inflection point in his career. Embarrassing anytime a fan base sounds like the Utah Jazz that, fan base. Yes. So... <laughs> We got too carried away with screen assists, yeah. but now we have to be cognizant of the idea that if you're going to be a role man, you actually have to be really good at setting screens. Yeah. And that's too, actually another thing Precious Chua needs to do is yes. set better screens this year, and yeah. we need to see it from Scotty Barnes. Um, most likely Raptor to be traded. <sighs> I knew this was, that's why yeah. I love it. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to cheat here. You're going to be political? Otto Porter Jr. No, you. Uh, I almost swore on air. You almost got me to call you the B word. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like uh, look, of the three uh, pending Otto free agents, Junior, go to prison. I'll say Pascal's the likeliest. I would. I said Gary Over Trent Gary? all last year. Yeah, um, yeah. that's. Uh, I Trent. don't think it's likely Pascal goes, but like the the you would understand the logic even if you don't want it to happen. So I'll put him ahead of OG and Gary. Just obviously, like we know with OG, the the value alignment just isn't isn't there with you know how this team has viewed his value and other teams. But all three of those guys off market. What's your answer to that? One? Yeah, it's also Siakam because I think it's a it's a two part fit. One is that if it's if the Raptors are below expectations, right? If they're not winning basketball games and they end up closer to like a thirty six win team than a forty four win team then I think that they have to make that decision in season. Like they can't just punt this and say, don't worry, we're bringing back Siakam. We're bringing the whole gang back and we're just trading Gary Trent Jr. It's like, wait, 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 how does this change the team? And then I also think that it's a perfect blend of if the Raptors are, if they're under their projected win total, according to what this franchise believes that they should be at their peak. And you have an open NBA 
I could see there being a team out there that goes, we're also not meeting our expectations, but we want our window to win be now. now. And so that includes the Atlanta Hawks. That includes the Sacramento Kings, in my opinion. Like they could be kind of lurking as a group that, oh crap, the West is a little bit muddier than we thought it was going to be. Maybe we're trying to package something together that involves a lot of draft picks that could entice the Toronto Raptors. Mm -hmm. This is part of the reason why it sucks not owning your own pick is because... There's, you know, yeah, the you got to bottom it, all the way out, right, which you're and, not going to do. They're not going to do, and nor should they really want to do. But I just feel like between, I don't know how the Mavericks get it done, but just like, you know, this the type of team that I'm talking about here is like yeah. Timberwolves, Pelicans, Thunder, Miami, Kings, Miami Atlanta, yeah. that enough of those teams in a year where we're looking at a paper-thin Phoenix team, a paper-thin Milwaukee team, a very good and underrated still Denver team that I think is more of a juggernaut than people realize, even though we're watching it over and over and over again, <laughs> like last night. And then a Boston team that I think could be very much on their level in terms of contender but if things go right. thin in the front court. Big time. And yeah. is also relying on Chris Tapps Przingis' knees to carry, help carry them to a title. That one of these teams could get frisky enough to say, you know what, let's meet Masai's asking price and let's get this thing done. So I'm with you on the non-Auto Porter Jr. <laughs> Go to jail. I hate that you said that. Uh, win total before we go. I had said 40 on the Dunked On podcast a couple weeks ago. I feel like I have to stick with that. Yeah. I feel it's closer to like 43 now, but I, I made the prediction a couple weeks ago, and I don't I don't feel comfortable coming off of it, even if the preseason was very encouraging. Here's the thing. I, I set the over in terms of not making these trades at 44 and a half. Okay. If you go over 44 and a half wins, you don't, make fine, the trade. don't make the trades for the guys. And you can make the argument of like doubling down and hoping to kind of build off the core, blah, blah, blah. If you go under that, I, I think it's time. You have to, you're at the inflection point. So you got to be two, three games over 500 yeah, at the deadline. Yeah, you do. Uh, you got to be two, three over 500 at the deadline. And you also have to feel it where it's like this, some of the stuff is working and that those yeah. two guys are meshing because otherwise, yeah, I don't think people are going to stand for another team that just says we're going with a flat movement. Anyways, we got to run. You've got your show again today. Do you have anything? Uh, Grange is coming on. Grange has a huge yeah, read on Coach Starko up at Sports so It's I started reading really it this good. morning and I was like, oh my God. It's really God, good. I read it on my way weeks. in. Um, yeah, and then it's opener Got to read Alex's book and Grange's book all yeah, on the same day. It's, it's a lot of reading. <laughs> no, it's actually, it's, I started reading it as classic, really good Grange. Anyways, Blake Murphy of the Raptor Show and Raptors writer for Sportsnet. You'll be a regular on the show all season long. And I'm sure we'll have a lot of these conversations over and over and over again. Uh, thanks for making time and listen to his show later today. Subscribe to the podcast, leave five stars. We will see you tomorrow.